The latest from 7 News with Michael Usher. Good evening and welcome. Tonight, historic meeting Scott Morrison preparing to meet with Joe Biden. We'll go live to New York. Violent protests in Melbourne, more expected. We're live in that city. The Queensland police officer accused of smuggling his daughter across the closed state border. And inside a breakthrough trial treatment, changing the lives of victims of stroke and brain injury. But first, Scott Morrison is right now preparing for his first official meeting with President Biden in the US as the two leaders fend off French fury over that controversial submarine deal. Our political editor, Mark Riley, is live in New York City for us tonight. Mark, good evening to you. So it's a big meeting, a big few days of meetings. What's being discussed up front? Yeah, Michael, uh, this meeting with Joe Biden is a crucial one for Scott Morrison. Obviously, they had plenty to talk about that subs deal and the fallout now, spilling over into other alliances, uh, problems in, in NATO with uh, European partners there, and, of course, all the trade implications, not just for Australia. Joe Biden's under a lot of pressure here, too, broadly on foreign policy. But... Mr Biden met with the UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres last night. Very interestingly, he told him that he was intent on not entering a Cold War with China, that his approach was to really move away from two decades of conflict after September 11 and to start a new era of what he called US-led diplomacy. And I guess, in a way, the AUKUS pact and this submarine deal is probably the second step in that move, Michael, the first being the withdrawal from Afghanistan. So I think, you know, Biden's saying that he has a plan. It's just starting to evolve, Michael. But what's happening right now, because we understand, Riles, that in fact the PM's gone into meetings with the Europeans before the, before the US officials, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So he's in a meeting uh, right now with the chairman of the European Council, uh, Mr Charles Michel. Uh, that's, that's pretty much a, just a pro forma meet and greet. The real meeting, the important one, will be later on with the head of the European Commission, Ursula van der Leyen. Uh, she is the one who is going to translate the, uh, the uh, problems that uh, she's been hearing from European members, particularly, principally France, mm. about this submarine deal. And uh, he'll, he'll be doing his best to ensure there isn't a big economic price for this, a big financial price for Australia, to try and keep those very rich trade talks with Europe on track. And, of course, France is uh, trying to scuttle those. So that's a very important meeting. And that will be just shortly before his meeting with Joe Biden around lunchtime, New York time today. Yeah, Ross, there's no doubt the whole France submarine controversy is casting a pretty large shadow over the PM's trip to the United States. I mean, how is it likely yeah. to impact his meetings? And, and does he, on the side, have to run some pretty heavy diplomacy to try and rescue these trade deals? Is it far more serious than perhaps uh, he thought it might escalate to? Look, in the short term, it certainly is very serious. Um, you know, there's some very peaked rhetoric coming out of Paris. Uh, I think they, they've been a bit uh, surprised by the ferocity of the response, but it's not just Paris now. You're hearing things from Germany and from other parts of Europe. They're starting to coalesce now. And uh, But, you know, what Scott Morrison said that uh, this is a tough decision he's taken in Australia's national interest and it'd be naive to think that everyone would be happy. The interesting thing, Michael, though, and this will be a theme throughout all the meetings, finishing with that quad meeting with Narendra Modi from India, uh, Yoshida Suga from Japan, Mr Morrison and Joe Biden later in the week, a very significant meeting, that one. The underlying theme, though, is that, you know, the, this battle for, uh, for political supremacy, this geopolitical Stoush, if you like, between the US and China is now the defining issue of our era. Yeah. And Australia has picked sides. Uh, we, we're talking about a forever partnership with the US, and that's what this pact is about. So uh, it's, it's causing divisions, it's causing ructions. I think they were prepared 
for that, for some blowback, but not the ferocity that they're, they're feeling right now, Michael. Gee, in all of that context then, Riles, you've got to say that this uh, week ahead with the Prime Minister there, it's probably his largest set of international meetings uh, in his Prime Ministership so far. Without doubt. In fact, you know, over the last couple of decades, it's hard to think of a 24 hours where a, an Australian Prime Minister has had more important meetings with issues running left and right. Uh, when uh, Scott Morrison leaves New York here this afternoon, he'll fly straight to Washington where he'll meet Boris Johnson mm. at the Ambassador's residence tonight to talk about the relationship there. And look, overriding all this, there's COVID, there's vaccines, there's yep. President Biden's push on climate change, which is incredibly serious. He's at the UN today, the General Assembly, Assembly the President, and the word from the White House is that he's going to make a significant announcement there in his speech on climate change, Michael. All right. Well, you're straight out of lockdown Canberra on the Park Avenue there in New York Central. <laughs> You've got a big few days yeah. ahead covering. You've yeah, got a front row just, seat. Just, just like Deacon Canberra here, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm at home. Yeah. I don't believe you when you say that. But anyway, there you go. You've got a front row well, seat. Well, back in some... my, my old town. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You are. All right. Good on your eyes. Thank you for that. Well, for more on those tensions with France and the EU, our Europe correspondent Sarah Greenwich is live in Paris tonight. Sarah, good evening to you. You are getting a real sense of how they are feeling in that country. The French anger showing no signs of disappearing. Michael, good evening. They are not happy here at all. In the past 24 hours of having chats with various people, words like disturbing, strange and hurtful have been used to describe the ongoing crisis as they describe it between Paris and Canberra. And commentators here say the shock and the hurt being expressed by the French is very genuine. They do admit that they knew there were some problems with the subs deal uh, in terms of delays and costs, but they had no idea that Australia had a very serious plan B in the works and there are now uh, plans for parliamentary inquiries, questions being asked here about ev how even the country's intelligence services didn't know that this was coming. Uh, this morning there was a Defence Council meeting held at the Elysee Palace and led by President Macron and then in the past few hours a spokesperson for the country's Defence Department has put this pretty incredible thread on Twitter explaining from their perspective uh, what he calls the Australian submarine affair. And I'll just read you one of those tweets. It says that on the same day as the August announcement was made, the Australians wrote to France to say they were satisfied with the submarine's achievable performance and with the progress of the program. Now, that is completely different to what Scott Morrison is saying. He said that the French were told many months ago that they no longer needed these diesel submarines. Yesterday, Michael, we interviewed a French senator, Joëlle Gahir-Malem. She's been uh, in the French Senate for 17 years. She's also the vice chair of the NATO Parliamentary Assembly. And she says it's pretty simple. If the Aussies had have come to them to say, uh, we no longer need these subs, we want nuclear ones instead, they would have happily provided them. When you're France, you need to speak together. If there's a problem, you discuss it, you find solutions. But you don't just divorce. This is incredible. Even in the worst marriage, nobody ever asked us about providing nuclear-powered submarines, which would have been much easier for us. President Macron met with your prime minister. But when Morrison came to Paris, he never mentioned that. 
The senator there pointed out to us, Michael, that the big winner in all of this is the intended target, China, who is very happy about these divisions that are being caused. Uh, President Macron is due to speak with Joe Biden. We just have no idea exactly when that will be. Of course, not happy with the Americans either. All right, Sarah Greenwich here getting a real feel of the sentiment in Paris. Thank you for that. Victoria police have defended the handling of today's violent protests after that angry mob of tradies travelled through the city before blocking Melbourne's Westgate Freeway. Here's the state's chief commissioner. The type of activities committed by these people today, by these cowards, was disgraceful. Any police force anywhere in the world would have been challenged by a snap demonstration of this nature, and it was a challenging and confronting environment. We chose to prioritise public safety throughout the day so that we could ensure community members weren't injured. Yeah, the police chief speaking tonight. Sarah Jones is our reporter live at uh, Vic Police headquarters tonight. Sarah, good evening to you. What else did the commissioner have to say? Good evening, Michael. Well, 62 people have so far been arrested and three police officers were injured after the wild scenes across Melbourne today. It kicked off this morning around 10am when hundreds of protesters swarmed the CFMEU officers on Elizabeth Street. But the standoff between protesters and police lasted all day. At one stage this afternoon, they even took to the Westgate Bridge, bringing traffic to a standstill for around two hours no doubt terrifying so many motorists caught up in that chaos. Also caught up in that chaos was our Channel 7 News reporter Paul Dowsley who was covering the protest today. Now at one stage he was put in a headlock, urine was thrown at him and his cameraman and a little later in the day a can was actually piffed to the back of Dowsley's head. Yeah, they were pretty terrible scenes, Sarah, there's no doubt about that. But uh, there's a suggestion, worryingly, that the same group plans to demonstrate daily. The police, no doubt, have had a strong message for them or anyone planning to cause trouble. The message is quite simple, Michael. If you do it, you are putting lives in unnecessary danger. Our Premier Daniel Andrews also released a statement late this afternoon saying there is no excuse for terrible behaviour we've seen in our city over the last two days. For those who think violence is the answer, I ask that you think of your fellow Victorians doing the right thing over many months following the advice of health experts. We have come too far to turn back. Now, there are more than three active cases of coronavirus across the construction industry and they won't be allowed back to work until they received at least one jab. Michael. All right, Sarah Jones in Melbourne. Thank you for that. There was some relief among parents in Sydney today as the government revealed plans to allow bubbles of three children to get together and socialise. Serena and Aloro, let's go to you now in Sydney. Good evening to you. What are the new rules? Tell us about them. A breath of fresh air for parents, Michael. Good evening to you. That's what they are. Uh, a buddy bubble has now come into force from midday today. It means that to, uh, kids can have two friends over so long as they're in the same local government area or within five kilometres of their homes. Now, as always, there are some terms and conditions, some conditions to the restrictions being eased. You can't change your mind about which friends uh, you can visit. You, also, parents and carers of those kids need to be fully vaccinated and they can't stick around to mingle and catch up. Now, this will be a big relief 
for HSC students who are studying for their upcoming exams, yeah. an opportunity for study groups, but also for um, some younger students who might have been craving a little bit of connection. Hope your kids have been doing well, Michael. Yeah, they've been doing okay, although choosing the friends is going to get a little bit tricky amongst the kids and the, and the parents. Um, but the study groups is a really important thing. I think that's a great thing forward, especially for the HSC students at the moment. Um, Serena, let me ask you about this too. Limits on the construction industry. They've been strict in Sydney uh, during parts of the lockdown, but they're set to be removed. Yeah, that's right. Currently, a construction sites are operating at 50%, Michael, but from Monday, they will be operating at 100%, subject to the four square metre rule. But it means that workers can also be unvaccinated, which is an interesting one, mm. unless they are from those local government areas of concern. In that case, they need to be vaccinated in order to, to leave their local government areas of concern. So a little yeah. bit to think about, a little bit to get yeah, your head around. Yeah, there is. Yeah, there is indeed. Industry. Yeah. All right, it's a good step, though. Serena in Sydney tonight. Thank you very much. Australia's just reached a major vaccine milestone. We've just ticked over a total of more than 25 million doses administered since the rollout began. In the last 24 hours, more than 321,000 vaccines were received. Now, if those high rates are maintained, the 70% target will be reached in just over a month. The 80% mark, which should bring a national reopening, is set to be hit on the 11th of November. And there's more positive news on that vaccination front. The health minister's moving quickly tonight to have Pfizer's COVID jab approved for use in Australia for children aged 5 to 11. The pharmaceutical company says its vaccine is safe and effective for kids in that age group and is asking for authorisation from the US regulator. Greg Hunt is pressing the Pfizer Australia boss to apply with our regulator at, quote, the earliest possible time. A Queensland police officer has been suspended after allegedly helping his daughter across the New South Wales border. Our reporter Alex Lewis is live in Brisbane tonight. Alex, good evening to you. So the officer is now under investigation. Good evening, Michael. Well, Brisbane-based uh, Robert Eichenloff is being investigated by Ethical Standards Command for helping his daughter Maddie cross, into the cross the border from New South Wales into Queensland last week. It's alleged the 56-year-old drove down to the Gold Coast uh, while on duty to pick her up, uh, despite the fact she had no valid border pass. Uh, it aroused the suspicion of officers stationed at the border and they sounded the alarm. Now, Maddie had recently been working in the ACT and before that was working at, as a ski instructor in Threadbow and no doubt would have been looking forward to celebrating her 21st birthday uh, here in Queensland with her family, which is tomorrow. But tonight she's in hotel quarantine. Mm. Uh, she's been fined more than $4,000 for the breach, while her father faces a much greater penalty. Potentially, he's been suspended from the police service uh, while Ethical right. Standards Command carries out their investigation. All right, Alex. Now, the Queensland government has now tightened border restrictions for parts of northern New South Wales. Yes, Michael, the border bubble is all but burst with the LGAs of Byron and the Tweed, uh, the latest to be locked down and locked out of Queensland. It's due to a positive case who travelled uh, to northern New South Wales from Sydney. Uh, she was a crew member on the reality TV show I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. She was authorised to be here, uh, to, to be there and had all the necessary paperwork. Uh, however, unfortunately, she did visit a number of shops, restaurants and bars in that region, which is 
enforced uh, that snap lockdown for at least seven days. Yeah. It means from 1am though, any uh, Tweed and Byron residents uh, wanting to, go, to come to Queensland can only do so uh, if they are seeking essential medical treatment or food which they can't access in New South Wales yeah. or if they are an essential worker and that definition of essential work uh, has been narrowed uh, to be uh, stipulate only those who are required for safety reasons, i.e. doctors, nurses, tradies performing emergency work. Um, and But once again, hospitality and tourism staff have been locked out, which is going to come as a big blow to businesses uh, on the Gold yeah, Coast to rely very heavily again, on it? people travelling yeah. across for work. Or yes, but if, if there's one image that really sums up the uh, the sentiment on the border, it's this uh, sign in North Kira on the Queensland side, which has been altered to read North Korea, which uh, is really how many people living on the border feel about these latest uh, restrictions to be imposed on them. Yeah, it's been particularly difficult in that area and so many confusing messages as well. All right, Alex, thanks for that. FBI agents have spent the day searching the family home of Gabby Petito's fiancé, hoping to find clues to his whereabouts. Brian Laundrie hasn't been seen since Tuesday when he left the Florida house saying he was going for a hike. It comes after detectives found the body of his fiancée, Gabby Petito, in a Wyoming National Park yesterday. It's an intriguing case. Justin Trudeau is holding on to power tonight, re-elected as the Canadian Prime Minister for a third time. His party didn't secure the majority win Trudeau was out to get. The early election widely seen as a gamble by the PM to gain extra seats in the Parliament. The Conservative opposition says the tight race was a waste of money. The European Court of Human Rights has ruled that Russia was responsible for the death of Alexander Litvinenko, who was fatally poisoned in London in 2006. It was a famous case. The ruling comes on the same day that a British court named a third Russian suspect in the Salisbury Novichok poisonings of 2018. Denis Sergeyev cannot be formally charged unless he's arrested, but Russia's refusing to comply with extradition requests. Australian investors have been dealt a blow this week with the stock market falling to a three-month low and a huge drop in the price of iron ore. For more details, I'm joined by finance editor Gemma Acton. Uh, Gemma, good evening to you. Hi. Let's start with this Chinese property developer, Evergrande. That's on the brink of collapse and that's been dominating global headlines this week. Yes, it has. Evergrande is one of the biggest property developers in China and it is drowning in debt right now. It owes more than 400 billion Australian dollars, not just to Chinese and international lenders, but also to suppliers, many employees and many families who've bought apartments off the plan and will likely now never get them. Um, Evergrande's plan was always to borrow a lot of money, uh, sell these apartments off the plan, and that worked out really well as long as the Chinese property market was booming, which it was for years. Uh, but that's really ground to a halt now. There's more supply than demand in many parts of China, and the government has really cracked down on property speculation. Uh, so the big fear is if Evergrande does indeed collapse, and right now it looks like it, it really will, uh, how much of a knock-on effect is that going to have on other property companies, on everybody whose jobs are connected to this, on the families who've, who've lost yeah. their houses? And above all, the Chinese property market and the economy, the Chinese property market makes up almost a third of the overall Chinese economy. So it's linked, it's linked heavily. Does the government step in? Do they bail out or what, what are they doing? That's a great question and we're waiting to see. Everybody's waiting and watching. It's really hard for the Chinese government. They uh, presumably don't want to see all the innocent victims, if you will, caught up in this and mm. lose their houses and their jobs and, and money. It could be really damaging for the banks as well, so they want to protect them. But do they really want to reward risky bad behaviour from a company? Probably not. So it's 
probably, most likely, they're looking for a solution that doesn't involve a bailout but helps people. So I mentioned iron ore prices at the beginning of this in strife. Is this all linked as well, if that property market is, is stalling or slowing down? Exactly. So the property market is really why we, our iron ore price has gone up so much in recent years. Um, around a third of Chinese steel is used in its property market and our iron ore is such a key component of that steel. Uh, the impact it has on our economy here at home is enormous. Our government estimates that for every $10 fall in the price of iron ore, there's a $6.5 billion hit to our economy. And we've seen that. Iron ore got up to $235 a tonne in May. It's dropped down to $93 a tonne just this week. Uh, so it's been wiped out partly because the property market is indeed slowing and partly because China's trying to rein in its carbon emissions as well. And we've seen that reflected on our share market. Uh, huge falls on the ASX 200 yeah. in the last couple of weeks. A really poor month. Our BHPs, our Fortescues, our big iron ore exporters have seen billions of dollars wiped off. So some of our viewers weren't already watching it. Evergrande, you want to see what's happening with that in the, in the next few weeks? Oh, it's the next got a few big days, I think a big crunch will That's come. That's short, yeah. yeah. All right, Gemma, thank you. Thanks, Michael. Tonight we're looking closely at an Australian scientist's very personal medical mission. Associate Professor Coralie Graham's son, Joel, has suffered the long-lasting effects of a catastrophic brain injury since he was three years old. Now, Coralie has made it her life's work to improve her child's condition. Well, now she's on the cusp of a breakthrough, trialling a drug in stroke patients normally used to treat arthritis. Associate Professor Graham joins me from Toowoomba, as does Dr Edward Tobinick, the founding director of the Institute of Neurological Recovery, and he's in Florida. He's pioneered the perispinal etanercept treatment before we discuss the trial in Queensland. Uh, Ed, I'm going to bring you in. Ed, welcome to both of you, by the way. But Ed, first to you, can you explain just how this treatment works? Yes. Um, we're using this medicine, Etanercept, injected in the back of the neck, just under the surface of the skin. And then we tilt the patient with their head below their feet. And what that does is delivers the medicine directly so that it penetrates the blood-brain barrier. It affects the brain in a favorable way if someone has neuroinflammation. It turns brain circuits on that have been turned off by the stroke. Ed, the, the, the sort of things that you've noticed in the patients after the treatment, describe what you see, the changes. We see changes across a broad spectrum of neurological deficits that the patients have had for years after their stroke. So we see improvements in walking, improvements in the ability to use the hands and the arms, improvements in thinking and cognition, improvements in spasticity and reduction or actually elimination of chronic stroke pain. And Ed, as I've experienced with you, I've interviewed you a few times and seen this firsthand, some of the results are pretty quick. Oh yes, we, we see remarkably so. We see improvements starting within a few minutes and usually they increase over time. Uh, Coralie, uh, Joel, I should ask you, how is he going? Joel's doing beautifully. He, um, it makes me smile to see those photos. There yeah. was one of, he performed in a choir um, that he belongs to, an All Abilities Choir, and it's just wonderful to, to see him um, being, able to, being able to speak, being able to uh, communicate, uh, being able to be part of, part of his community. It's just wonderful. So, Joel, before and after, how would you describe Oh, almost two different people. Before he had the treatment, and it's now seven years since um, since he's been over and had the treatment with Dr Tobinick, um, 
he had very little intelligible speech. His short-term memory was very poor. His concentration was poor. Uh, he was very aggressive uh, because he struggled to communicate. He could walk a few steps um, with somebody kind of holding him up. Mm. Uh, he would have recurrent chest infections, 10 chest infections a year. Often he would get aspiration pneumonia. Uh, so now, uh, seven years later, he can speak clearly. His short-term memory's improved. His concentration's improved. Uh, the other day he walked about a kilometre and a half Gosh. before he needed to sit back in yeah. his wheelchair and then he wants to get up and walk again. Um, with the chest infections, um, he, in seven years, instead of having 10 a year, that would have been 70 chest infections, he's had three chest infections mm. because he's got his cough reflex back again. Um, it's just wonderful. Just Life-changing life doesn't quite describe it because it goes beyond. No. It's extraordinary, isn't it? So, Coralie, let's talk about this latest development here. You've obviously had early success stories already. We've talked about that before, but what are you hoping with, uh, with this trial? Um, so this, uh, but the clinical trial that's currently underway, um, so we've got um, 80 participants that we're, we're looking at. It's all double-blind, placebo-controlled. Um, and so we're looking at the evidence being put forward uh, from this. We'll publish, uh, publish this and it will go towards um, making a case to the TGA to have uh, perispinal atenocept treatment approved for stroke. Coralie, a time frame, when might this be possible in Australia? I know there's a lot of hurdles yet, but when do you think? The current clinical trial, we'll, we're going to finish that before the end of the year. So we would hope then that we would have more success in getting government funding. I mean, this is going to save, save the federal government and us as taxpayers billions of dollars um, and and that's that's what needs to be looked at it's this is an investment in people's health um, and the other thing is of its COVID relevance you know like it's it's something that's now that the rates of of COVID in uh, New South Wales and Victoria are so high you're going to see people who are left with debilitating fatigue and loss of taste and smell yep. a lot of those people from yeah. the fatigue are not going to be able to work and that's, again, a cost. Um, and this is relevant to that. We've seen the same types of effects we've seen with our stroke patients. Rapid neurological improvement, including rapid recovery of, of taste and smell, improvements in cognition, reduction in fatigue, and also reduction in or elimination, actually, of depression. So it is uh, we're hoping to get that into clinical trials but we're treating uh, patients with long COVID already with success those long COVID effects are going to be quite significant as you say so let's uh, let's hope and see whether this can have some help there as well uh, again it's really good to talk to you both and get an update on this uh, ed tobinick from florida we appreciate that thank you doctor and associate professor coralie graham thanks again thank you thank you the New South Wales government has introduced new social bubbles for children in lockdown. Up to three people under 18 can now spend time together if they live within the same five kilometre radius. For more, here's child psychologist Ellen Kulbicki now. Ellen, uh, thank you for joining me tonight. What's your initial reaction to this measure? Look, can I just say how pleasing it is uh, that the voice of children and young people is being heard and responded to? I think most of the conversation up until now has been about adults and their well-being. So, you know, I think it's really wonderful that we're actually hearing, you know, the voice of young people and children. And good timing for the school holidays. Obviously, homeschooling had some structure. Uh, now they don't, though, because the kids are on holidays. 
Could it be problematic, though, for parents, Ellen? What are the potential issues for them as you see it? Well, look, I suppose it's similar to, you know, if we were to have a party for our child, we've got to now work through and, and choose who are we going to have that friend bubble with. So taking our time to really um, work with our child to figure out who is the best position to have that bubble with um, and not to rush that decision as well. I mean, there is the potential to have some children feel a little more isolated, like those parties, if they're left out of those friend bubbles. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose it's just about having those honest conversations with our children and finding as many opportunities as we can to help them to connect with their peers, um, with other children mm. and, you know, with relatives as well. Connection is so important. I mean, it, could that help with the homeschooling process as well, Ellen? Oh, absolutely. I think this has so many wonderful positive implications for education. I mean, we've been hearing up until now, particularly of our HSE students, how they're lacking a lot of motivation. So being able to study in groups together is definitely going to have a big boost to their morale and their overall motivation. So absolutely. Yeah, I think that's an incredibly positive aspect of it, the study groups. It's really important. Um, what about, I mean, how are parents and carers going to notice the effects of this new freedom? What, what do you see as being the real impact on children having that connection and choosing a little bubble of their own? Uh, I think it has such you know, possibilities for significant implications and give them, giving them that sense of normality again, this is all going to end at some point. Taking away that sense of uncertainty and anxiety, it's going to be able to let them, as you say, connect in person with their friends, um, which I suppose has such positive impacts on, you know, overall wellbeing and happiness as well. And I think children really need to be around other children to be able to develop play skills, develop social skills, to develop communication. So I think we're going to see all those positive impacts. Look, some kids have been able to catch up one-on-one, -on -one, uh, exercising at the very least or going for a walk with a mate. But I think the difference here is this is in the home. It normalises socialising with kids in the home again, and that's important, right? Absolutely. And I think that's that whole sense of normalcy. And when we're out of normality and out of routine, it just creates so much uncertainty and anxiety. So I think overall that well-being is, is going to be impacted so significantly yeah. for the kids. A little bit of a juggle for the parents working out that there's no tension or anxiety about choosing the friends, but a good step forward. 100%. All right, Ellen. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. More countries are planning to open their borders to international travellers in the coming weeks, giving Australians more potential destinations once 80% of the population is vaccinated. To give us all the details, we're joined by travel and aviation expert James Wilkinson. Wilco, good evening to you. So the Biden administration, it's set to open American borders in November. That is interesting. Yeah, good to see you, Michael. Yeah, they're talking about opening up to travellers across the world on the condition that you are double vaccinated and have a negative test. Uh, up to three days before departure. So um, they have had the, the negative testing on, on a lot of international flights out of the US already. So they're now deciding that the best way to do it is to, to follow the same model. So out of Australia at the moment, there are three airlines already flying on a daily basis from, uh, from Australia to the United States. On Sydney, LA, it's Delta, it's American United already flying. Mm. Uh, so there are already a lot of airlines already already going. Qantas, we know, are going to restart in December. They're saying we know that Hawaiian Airlines are looking at uh, December or January and Jetstar start in March. So, Michael, there's a lot of great news for the US in terms of uh, getting there. So this is one extra step, isn't it, to getting into the US in terms yeah. of 
knowing how to do that. We don't know how to get back to Australia at this stage, but, but getting get into there. the US, <laughs> what like about Canada. When we, so. What about when we get there, or there and Canada? Quarantine yeah. periods or walk out of the airport and off you go? Walk out of the airport and off you go, Michael. Yeah. Not even testing uh, at, at all. So we know with Singapore what's going on with the testing before you get there, when you get there, and uh, several days later. The US is simply going to be uh, double vaccinated and uh, a negative test before you travel. Canada at, at this stage, as far as we're aware, is only the double vaccination, yeah. not even a negative test. So those two making it very easy and one of our favourite hotspots, Hawaii, is, uh, is firmly on the radar for that one. Very briefly, they will recognise the vaccines that have been given in Australia. There's going to be no question about whether it's locally produced AstraZeneca or not or... At this stage, we, we know they'll have a list of approved vaccines and where they've been taken at right. the moment. So that comes down, I guess, to where you've had it. If you haven't had it in Australia, obviously there's a few more questions being raised. Sure. But C Canada will recognise the AZ, the okay. Moderna and obviously the Pfizer jabs. Now, our neighbours in Bali, they're also set to reopen to overseas visitors. They are set to reopen in October, Michael, but um, not to Australia at this point, which is a bit strange given they're having about almost 2,000 cases a day at the moment of COVID. Um, only some 20% of the population is actually fully vaccinated. So I'm not sure who's going to be jumping on a plane going to Bali and at, at this point in time, Michael, but no. it, it is a very different scenario, isn't it, to what you'll find in California, what you'll find in Hawaii or what you'll find in Fiji. So yeah. I think Indonesia might be one of the later ones to come on, just given the pure numbers of it and, and how yeah. long it is taking to get to a population of some two, you know, some 200 and something million that need to get vaccinated. Look, they're on their knees, so I can understand them wanting to reopen there, but um, mm. I don't think we'll be rushing there just yet. Wilco, this is an no. interesting one. Also, Qantas uh, set to embark on one of its longest ever flights to repatriate stranded Australians. What's the details there? It is one of the longest all-time, Michael. As we know, the longest all-time was at London Sydney 747. They did, they have been up until the pandemic flying Perth, London. So this is Buenos Aires to Darwin, an expatriation flight uh, coming out of Argentina. And that's going to be 14,683 kilometres, just 150 off the London hop. So you can expect to be on that jet for a good 17 and a half hours, Michael. It's uh, quite a journey, but on that beautiful Dreamliner, it is a very smooth one, uh, albeit a very long one. What's the route there? Which which part of the world? Where, where do you, what's the most direct way to, to, to fly? Uh, over the South Pole, they're saying. Yeah. I remember uh, when I was a kid actually going on Aerolinas Argentinas to Buenos Aires and we used to go over the pole, get so excited. Yeah. Make sure you had a window seat for that one and get a few great scenic shots on the way. But it, it's certainly quite a journey. It's this, Over the South Pole is a majestic journey in any stretch. It's important, though. More of these uh, repatriation flights are crucial. All right, James, good to talk to you again. Always a pleasure, Michael. Now, Gemma Acton's back with a look at the markets. Well, Michael, we were braced for a brutal day of trading across the region, but in a pleasant surprise for investors, Tokyo's Nikkei index was the only major market to finish lower. Here at home, local shares recovered from an early sell-off to crawl their way to a mildly positive close. And this follows the worst one-day session on Wall Street since October overnight, with the tech-heavy Nasdaq losing more than 2%. It's now looking brighter stateside for tonight's open. Oil continues to avoid the jitters striking many other commodity markets this week, while the Aussie dollar has strengthened throughout the day to now be edging its way back towards 73 US cents. Michael. Thank you, Gemma. Well, an intuition or a superstition. D supporters either way are just hoping that Henry's hunch is right. We're talking about Henry the Octopus, who's at the Aquarium of Western Australia, calling it tonight, choosing Melbourne as the AFL Grand Final winners. There you go. He's doing it. He took half an hour to mull over the options, no doubt weighing up the all-important stats. Henry, we know, will be glued, like so many people, to Channel 7 on Saturday to see if he was on the money. It's going to be an extraordinary grand final. 
Well, Guinness World Records has certified two Japanese sisters as the world's oldest identical twins. Mino and Kumi have reached the grand age of 107 years and 300 days, breaking a record by another set of Japanese twins. The sisters were presented with their official certificates today. Well, thank you for your company this evening. From the team here at 7 News, that is the latest. I'm Michael Usher. Have a good night.